This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we take our favorite horror films from the classic, the camp, to the cringe, and we put them on the examination table and we look at them through the lens of disability. We'll be looking at characters that represent the disability experience, and we'll also be looking at films that have themes that resonate for those of us with disabilities. My name is Nicole, I'm your host, and I'm so thrilled to have you here with me. So what is on the examination table for this episode? I'm going to be talking about Todd Browning's 1932 classic, Freaks. I'm going to be giving a little bit of a history of the sideshows associated with the traveling circuses and carnivals of the time, just to kind of give us a little bit uh, more context of the setting uh, in addition to talking about the film, as well as talking a little bit about the impact that the film continues to have to this day. So, without further ado, let's get into it, and let's talk about Freaks. folks. We told you we had living, breathing monstrosities. You laughed at them, shuddered at them, and yet, but for the accident of birth, you might be even as they are. They did not ask to be brought into the world, but into the world they came. Their code is a law unto themselves. Offend one, and you offend them all. And now, folks, if you'll just step this way, you are about to witness the most amazing, the most astounding living monstrosity of all time. Friends, she was once a beautiful woman. A royal prince shot himself for love of her. She was known as the peacock of the air. Miss Wahan, she's the most beautiful big woman I have ever seen. Why, Han, how you talk? I should be jealous pretty soon. Ah, don't be silly. Don't be silly. I've seen these women making ice at my hand. Of course, I ain't jealous. Oh, freedom, my dear. I have ice for only one woman. The woman I asked to be my wife. 
radar. Ich habe den Gürtel enger gemacht. Das ist viel besser. Er war immer hinuntergerutscht. Er war zu los. Dankeschön. Your plot synopsis. A conniving trapeze artist named Cleopatra seduces a carnival sideshow little person named Holmes after learning of his large inheritance, much to the chagrin of Frida, his fiancée. Cleopatra also conspires with Circus Strongman, Hercules, to kill Holmes and inherit his wealth. Meanwhile, other romances flourish among the sideshow performers. The bearded lady, who is in love with the human skeleton, gives birth to their daughter. The news is spread among the friends by the stork woman. Additionally, Violet, a conjoined twin whose sister Daisy is married to Roscoe, the stuttering circus clown, uh, she becomes engaged herself to the circus's owner. Hans has become enamored with Cleopatra and ultimately marries her. At their wedding, Cleopatra begins poisoning Hans's wine, but drunkenly kisses Hercules in front of Hans, revealing her affair. Oblivious, the other freaks announce that they accept Cleopatra in spite of her being a normal outsider. They hold an initiation ceremony in which they pass a loving cup around the table while chanting, We accept her, we accept her, one of us, one of us, gobble gobble, gobble gobble. However, Cleopatra's, Cleopatra's mean spirited amusement at the ceremony soon turns into fear and anger after Hercules jokes that the rest of the entertainers plan to turn her into one of them. She mocks them, tosses the wine in their faces, and drives them away before berating Hans and drunkenly parading him around on her shoulders like a child. The humiliated Hans realizes that he has been played for a fool and rejects Cleopatra's attempts to apologize, but then he falls ill from the poison. While bedridden, Han pretends to apologize to Cleopatra and also pretends to take the poison medicine that she is giving him, but he secretly plots with the other entertainers to strike back at Cleopatra and Hercules. In the film's climax, Hans confronts Cleopatra with three of the entertainers as backup thugs. However, Hans's circus wagon is overturned in a storm, giving Cleopatra the chance to escape into the forest closely pursued by them. At the same time, Hercules goes to kill seal trainer Venus for knowing about the plot. Venus's boyfriend, Frozo, attempts to stop Hercules, but is nearly killed before the rest of them intervene and injure Hercules, saving Frozo. They all pursue an injured Hercules. The freaks then capture Cleopatra, and sometime later, she is shown to be a grotesque, squawking human duck on display for carnival patrons. Her tongue has been removed, one eye has been gouged out, the flesh of her hands has been melted and deformed to look like duck feet, her legs have been cut off, and what is left of her torso has been permanently tarred and feathered. While some versions end on Cleopatra as a human duck, Another ending shows Hans, now living in a mansion of his inheritance and still humiliated, visited by Frozo, Venus, and Frida. 
Bridget tells Hans not to blame himself for what happened and that she still loves him. The two then share a heartwarming hug and it is presumed that they will continue their relationship. So I think before we get into the film proper, I do want to give a very brief kind of overview of the Carnival Sideshow because it is the setting of our film. I want to talk a little bit about what it was, a little bit of its history, and I think it's also important because, you know, so many of the actors in this film had a background in being sideshow performers. So, what is a carnival sideshow? Well, basically, this was a uh, kind of performance showcase for individuals that were physically unique. And I say that because obviously it leaned very hard towards individuals with physical disabilities, but um, individuals that were heavily tattooed, uh, non-white performers from different places around the world would also be featured in these sideshows. And um, they really rose to popularity, I would say, starting from the 1840s. So this is really when uh, like P.T. Barnum was uh, making a pretty big splash with his sideshows and uh, creating a museum uh, of, uh, you know, oddities for individuals to come and view. And it started to wane in popularity in, I think, the late 1930s um, and then through the 1940s. Now, this mirrored... I think the popularity of vaudeville performances, obviously there's a lot of similarities in structure there. And a lot of the performances were based kind of in a vaudeville style. But the uh, kind of dissipation of popularity of both of those uh, things kind of were spurred by different factors. So vaudeville began to lose in, uh, lose some steam, lose some popularity once uh, movies began to become slightly bigger. And the sideshows, both as kind of a result of that, but also uh, just attitudes were beginning to change. So, and I'll talk a little bit about that um, towards the end, but I wanted to kind of give that context of time frame is worth noting that there were other kinds of these sideshows occurring around this time as well. An example of this would be Joseph Merrick, also known as the Elephant Man, uh, traveling in uh, England at the time. And these shows were set up very differently in terms of not performance space, but rather more of a spectacle nature of coming and viewing someone with a pretty severe physical disfigurement. And they would also kind of base it in terms of an informational session, I guess, where they would talk about his condition in medical language and try to make it uh, informative for individuals that were coming uh, to the event. So there were different iterations of these sideshows occurring at this time. So we have talked a little bit about the 
construct of a carnival sideshow. And we've gone into a little bit of the history, but now I want to dig into the film. And I want to do this by talking primarily about some of the relevant themes. Because when you, you know, going back to our plot synopsis, you know, this film is really a somewhat standard revenge film. And the fact that it's set uh, amidst kind of a traveling circus um, and we have individuals with disabilities factors into the actual plot dynamics uh, in a pretty minimal way. It really, I think, hits when we talk about some of the themes. And I want to focus in on some of the themes that I, you know, and kind of going back, doing a little bit of research, seeing what some other folks had to say about this film. I didn't really see them hit on as strongly. And so the first theme I want to talk about is infantilization, which is kind of the codifying or, you know, as I like to call it, the woobifying of individuals. So kind of treating them in a very childlike manner, uh, despite them oftentimes not being children. And this uh, film comes straight out of the gate with this theme when we have Hans and Frida uh, kind of talking before they're going uh, into their performance. This is where we also meet Cleopatra because Hans sees Cleopatra performing and mentions to Frida, his fiance, that, you know, she's the most beautiful uh, big woman I've ever seen. And first off, that's a real fuckboy move. Like, why why would you tell your fiancé that? Hans is kind of trash in this film. Let's just get that out of the way. But he goes on to say that, you know, average-sized individuals will often laugh at him or mock him. And, you know, it should be noted that Frida's also a little person. Um, but she doesn't really uh, kind of push that any further you know she's like well I'm your fiance I love you what does this even matter and um so Cleopatra ends her performance she comes out and you can see that Hans is pretty smitten with her and she kind of flirts with him but you know, what's interesting about even this first interaction that we see is that she does some of the very things that he's saying, I don't like. They make me uncomfortable. She's kind of speaking down to him. Um, you know, she has this cape on as part of her her kind of performance gear. And she drops it so that he can pick it up and help her with it. But she just kind of stands there. At first, and he looks at her, she kind of chuckles, and he's like, well, you're laughing at me, aren't you? And she's saying no, but then, you know, kind of bends down so that he can help her with the cape. And it's such a, you know, kind of condescending exchange because she knows that she uh, can kind of manipulate him in this way. And then she does and probably one of my favorite exchanges in the entire film, Frida and Hans are getting ready to go in to their performance right after. And Cleopatra goes up to Frida. Frida's wearing like a, 
address a tutu type situation and goes and, you know, touches it while Frida is getting on her horse to go into uh, the circus, the performance space, and Frida is not having it, knocks her hand away and says, don't, don't, because Cleopatra is being very condescending to her. So we have this infl- this infantilization happening, and we see this with Hans in particular throughout the entire film. And again, I think part and parcel of this is because Hans is a little person, and that's very much the dynamic that Cleopatra strikes. Um, you know, she pinches his cheeks when she's like, come up and uh, see me sometime, you know, come up and have some wine with me. And he's so, I think, enraptured by her that he's not making the connection that the very things that upset me uh, in kind of normal interactions with folks is not really resonating with me here, that she's doing the exact same thing. Frida's obviously very hip to it, not having it at all. But, uh, you know, he's he's kind of turned um, kind of uh, away from it and is not really recognizing it. And we see this even, you know, as their relationship develops. Um, you know, she, at their wedding, you know, per the synopsis, at the very end, as Cleopatra is kind of, you know, she's completely trashed, pushing everyone away um, from the celebration, and Hercules and Cleopatra decide to kind of mock Hans by, you know, oh, well, you want a horsey ride? Well, get on my shoulders. And so they're prancing around with him on Cleopatra's shoulders, and it's very demeaning. And again, I think this is really the moment because Cleopatra has really gone off the rails in terms of just being really vindictive and cruel to everyone that I think it becomes really difficult for Hans to not recognize it. Like, it's kind of in his face now. He has to deal with the situation at hand. And so... He's being poisoned. They go back to uh, Cleopatra's trailer. And Cleopatra's, you know, and Hercules are both there and, you know, trying to uh, apologize in some way to Hans by saying, you know, just really drunk. We were out of hand. And Hans is poisoned, falling ill, and isn't really... I think, with it at this time. He's not really understanding what they're kind of saying, and he's just sick. And so he passes out. They take him uh, to, I think it's his trailer. Um, the trailers all kind of look a little bit of li- a little bit alike. Um, so I'm confused between which was Cleopatra's and Hans's towards the end. But they, she takes him, I think, to his trailer and she begins to care for him. But we know that she's continuing to poison him. And again, with the infantilization 
of this character because, you know, she's giving him this medicine in a very motherly way. It's poison. She's still making him ill, but he's hip to it. He's spitting it out. Um, but it's, you know, here, let me go fix your medicine before I go out. Um, and it's, you know, through kind of these interactions that just keep piling up that I think Collins finally realizes just what a despicable person uh, Cleo truly is and and why he kind of brings on uh, his friends to kind of help uh, put an end to the situation. While that is a way that infantilization played, I think a key piece in the plot because obviously the plot really does center around uh, kind of this love square of Hans, Freda, uh, Hercules, and Cleopatra. There was another scene that really stood out to me uh, that happens early in the film, and it is uh, just a really small scene where Madame Tretronelli who is, I guess, kind of an overseer um, of the sideshow, is just kind of out in, I think, some of the surrounding area with uh, a number of the other performers. So you've got Pip and Zip. Uh, you've got uh, Cuckoo. Um, just a number of the other performers are just kind of out enjoying some time off. And these two gentlemen come and see them and make some pretty disparaging remarks about how, you know, oh, uh, these individuals shouldn't be um, allowed in this area. And if I had control, I would kick them out. And I can't imagine, you know, um, if, if I were to uh, have children like this. And so they go to Madame Trecinelli and she plays a motherly role, particularly with, uh, I think it's Schlitzy and Pip and Zip are the ones that she's, I think, most connected to. And, you know, she's like, oh, well, the children just wanted to be out and enjoy some sunshine and, and we shouldn't we shouldn't discourage that. Like, they should be able to be out and, and get sunshine, right? Like, they're not doing any harm. And, you know, being able to, I mean, these are adults. And, but because these are adults with apparent disabilities, she's able to kind of use this aspect of infantilization to, you know, kind of de-escalate any kind of conflicts. And, you know, they play into it a little bit um, just to kind of get these individuals off their backs. And it's a rare kind of switch that we see um, where, you know, it's a unfortunate, I think, stereotype and trope that we buy into. But we see these individuals be able to kind of use it in a way to, um, you know, continue to do what they want to do, live life. So the next theme I want to hit on is the idea of community. Community is very important for individuals with disabilities. I talked about my own experience as being someone that grew up in a very rural area and not around other people with disabilities. And it 
was a real challenge to find an outlet to talk to individuals that kind of understood what my experience was like and to kind of share in that. And with the Carnival Sideshow as our setting here, we have that built-in sense of community that also includes um, some individuals without disabilities. Everyone is just kind of, you know, colleagues working together. They treat each other with respect. I mean, obviously this excludes Cleopatra and Hercules. But, you know, we have all these little moments of back and forth between um, folks where, you know, it's just kind of normal, everyday conversations. Um, So I like that we're laying a foundation of general community here. But it obviously becomes highlighted once we get a little bit further into the film and towards our end with our wedding of Hans and Cleopatra. So, you know, Cleopatra being someone that is not disabled, they make a gesture. Um, The group makes a gesture to make her feel welcome by sharing a cup of wine and, you know, doing the chant of one of us, one of us. And it isn't until the idea that Hercules jokingly mentions that, oh, well, they want to make you one of them. It's not until that moment that Cleopatra really goes off the the rails, so to speak, because the concept of being really part of that community um, horrifies her. She sees herself as being better. And so just the concept of it is causes her to lash out. And we, in no way, shape, or form, have we seen any of the performers in any faction uh, act aggressively. But once they see that Hans is in a pretty perilous situation, they kind of rally together. They want to protect Hans. And, you know, obviously, I think it's also a little bit of, you know, you also said some pretty trash uh, things about us altogether. So, you know, while we're doing this to protect Hans, we're also doing this as a fuck you um, as well. So the sense of community and being able to rely on your friends and those around you for support, I think is really uh, an important underlying theme here that, you know, even at the end, uh, you know, and I said, Hans is ultimate fuck boy in this film. He's trashed Frida um, and strings her along for no reason. He's just, he's kind of terrible. But, when he's in a bad spot, his friends, his co-workers come together. And even Frida, at the very end, forgives him and says, I love you. You fucked up. And that's bad. But I still love you. And it's fine. So that sense of community, having people that can only understand certain elements of your experience and be able to 
commiserate and come together around that, I think, is something that's really important. And being it a disability community, I think, you know, the fact that Cleopatra and Hercules see themselves as so separate from that in particular, I think really says something about the power of, you know, the ending where she does become one of them. And so I think this is a good place to talk about the ending now. And I think one of the struggle points or the main questions that give people pause in kind of thinking about this film and how it portrays individuals with disabilities is who do we view as the villains or uh, the bad guys at the end? Is it Cleopatra and Hercules or is it our titular freaks? Well, I would definitely say that it's Cleopatra and Hercules. I mean, I don't think that should come as any surprise. Um, you know, I think, again, this follows a lot of the uh, kind of tropes and ideas around your basic revenge plot. Someone is harmed and revenge must be taken. I would then push to say that, you know, one thing not that I haven't seen discussed in, in terms of this film and, you know, who are the bad guys, kind of Hans. Again, I really hate Hans a lot um, for some of his choices in this film. Like, if he would have just been able to keep it chill, he had a wonderful fiancé with Frida, and he really really pulled some fuckboy moves by going out trying to find someone else that he you know not to say that he's the ultimate bad guy but come on Hans you you kind of brought some pain and hurt on a lot of folks because of your poor life choices and he's pretty lucky that I think Frida was able to, uh, you know, give him a second chance. But no, I definitely see Cleopatra and Hercules as being the villains. And I think being villains in a way that they symbolize or are kind of a representation of more of the... Uh, harmful ways that non-disabled individuals exploited and harmed uh, individuals with disabilities, particularly in these settings of, uh, you know, sideshows. See uh, what happened uh, to Hercules. We see him attacked, um, but, uh, you know, we don't really get to see him after the fact. And I know that there are longer versions of this film. I know there was like a 90 mer a 90 minute version that had I think just over uh 30 minutes more of additional content and some of that was uh you know this end sequence with uh Hercules and Cleopatra kind of uh being attacked 
by the group. But it also was a bulk of, uh, you know, these relationship and character development scenes with all of the performers. And, you know, I think having a full cut like that would definitely uh, impact the way that you view things at the finale. So, you know, I, yes, of course, I view Cleopatra and uh, Hercules as being the villains. Now, am I saying that, you know, if someone wrongs you, the answer is always violence? Um, of course not. And I don't think that that's, you know, kind of the typical go-to. But, um, you know, I think you're also dealing with uh, you know, a situation where these characters are represent are representing a much more uh, kind of harmful system that uh, these performers are trying to exist in. So I want to kind of wrap up discussion and talk a little bit about the impact that I think Freaks has had. Um, you know, as we're, we're slowly inching towards the hundred year mark of this film's release, you know, as I mentioned in the beginning, you know, the, the concept of these sideshows really, uh, you know, kind of hit a stride between, uh, the mid 1800s to the early to mid 1900s, but even though they waned in popularity and became much more rare, um, I think there's still some lasting impacts that we see. And I don't think that, you know, the ideas uh, contained within the sideshow construct necessarily went away. I think they just kind of became something else, and, and I'll hit on that as well. When we talk about impact, the, I think, most obvious question, and the most important, is, you know, how has Freaks, did Freaks, impact the way that the public viewed and understood individuals with disabilities? Now, there's a couple of things that I... I struggle with this question because I think it's really hard to tie one event into an overall change, especially when we see that, you know, ableism at its core is still very much alive and well. But, um, you know, this film was very controversial when it was released. And this goes back into, like I said, there were... Uh, different versions of the film the during a test screening um you know there were reports that this woman had miscarried because you know it wasn't due to you know gore on screen which is something that we hear now you know when we hear festival reports of oh you know the audience was uh just absolutely bananas and two people were carted out of uh the theater and needed medical intervention uh, because the scenes were so shocking it wasn't necessarily that the violence in this film was so shocking it was just the fact that 
there were these individuals with visible disabilities on screen and people found this very upsetting. Now this is, I'm going to say 99.9% .9 verified as being, uh, exaggerated to an extreme place but you know I think we can we can thank freaks for that kind of you know uh, reaction that we now come to anticipate with some of these films but when we're talking about the overall I guess perception and understanding of disability in the public sphere i would, you know, I, I think it's important to note, going back to the timeline that I talked about at the beginning, the sideshows were beginning to kind of wane out. And that was often attributed to, you know, our knowledge of medicine was growing, medical science was advancing. And so it, it was having an impact on people's um, I guess feelings around going and just kind of gawking at individuals that were different than them. Um, we were becoming slightly more informed. And so, you know, the decline in popularity of vaudeville was often attributed to the rise in film. But the sideshow aspect, I think, was you know, part of that and part of just us becoming a little bit more informed and hopefully a little bit more kind of cognizant of what we were going to view and how we were uh, kind of taking that all in and realizing it probably wasn't great. But, you know, then we get the kind of additional component of, well, you know, because the uh, performance group goes and attacks these two non-disabled individuals. Well, doesn't that portray them as being inherently violent? And I struggle with this. And my answer is honestly, no. Now, it's hard to kind of piece that apart because I'm looking at it through a modern lens. If I was viewing this in 1932, there could be, I think, a much bigger argument of, you know, per perpetrating uh, these stereotypes a little bit further. But I think even at that point, you know, in the film, none of these characters show any aggression or violence at any point outside of the end. And I don't think that it's necessarily commenting on the violent nature of individuals with disabilities. I think, again, we're getting more of that revenge um, and, you know, we've been wronged and now we're coming after you type vibe. And while it's connected to disability in this film, I think now we can clearly separate those two. I understand that in the time of this film's release, it was probably a little more complicated and uh, difficult to do so. So... I would say that in terms of overall impact, uh, especially as we're looking at it today in terms of that question, uh, no, I don't think it perpetrates the stereotype of individuals being uh, violent. I think it's kind of a standard revenge film. So 
I guess that's kind of my reaction or my approach to that, those, I guess, kind of bigger questions. But, you know, even though the concept of the sideshow, uh, or as we understand it, went away, uh, it's still kind of alive and well in different iterations now. I mean, up until recent times, uh, sideshows were part of music festivals, Coachella and Lollapalooza. You would have some individuals with disabilities as performers, but you know, I think it would lean a little bit more into tattoos, uh, individuals, piercings, and things like that. More of the body modification community were integrated there. Um, but then you have a recent season of American Horror Story, Freak Show. I think that happened maybe five or six years ago. In recent years, we've seen a boom in television programming, particularly like on channels like TLC, where we are uh, highlighting individuals with disabilities and their families. And many will argue that some of these programs are exploitative in nature because it's not really about enhancing an understanding of, you know, an individual's condition or, uh, you know, anything like that, presenting any kind of humanity. It's more like, let's just kind of gawk at this oddity, which goes back to the way that these uh, sideshows were often promoted and framed. And I think that, you know, outside of kind of an impact in that way, I mean, we had recent seasons of American Horror Story that had a setting of a freak show and you had individuals with disabilities that were cast there. And it obviously took um, a huge uh, page from Todd Browning's film. And I happen to really like that season, honestly. Um, I found it really interesting and the performances uh, were pretty stellar. So if you haven't seen that season, if it was something that you skipped, definitely go back, especially if you're kind of interested in, um, you know, kind of this type of setting. I think it's, it's, you know, it's American Horror Story. It's not great, but I found it fairly enjoyable. And again, you've got actors with disabilities, so it's... It's a pretty, I think, decent watch if it's something that you're into. But yeah, I, I think, you know, the impact of Freaks, both in terms of, you know, the public's understanding and awareness and treatment of individuals with disabilities and kind of from a cultural aspect of how it, you know, impacted media and, you know, both in positive and negative ways. And, you know, I would even argue that, you know, I have said that I think that this film serves as a pretty uh, by-the-numbers revenge film. But, you know, you've got your elements of body horror. I think that horror films really have taken a page from some of the foundational pieces of this film. And I'm always surprised that, you know, there's not a lot of uh, conversation around this film because I think there is quite a bit to dissect just from kind of the horror aspect, you know, how it may have influenced or flavored what we now see as body horror. 
Um, so, you know, I would love to have kind of those conversations uh, popping up because I think they would be really interesting. But that I think is going to conclude the conversation around freaks. There's obviously a lot to unpack with this film and I'll link a couple of great sources if you're interested in learning even more about the history of sideshows and vaudeville. Um, there was also a recent podcast by um, another uh, podcast, Freaks and Psychos. They uh, did an episode on freaks and it is a pretty fascinating listen as well. So um, I'm going to link uh, some resources in the show notes if you want to check that out. But I do hope that you have enjoyed this episode. I hope maybe you've learned one or two additional things about the film. And as always, we'll go back and maybe watch it with a slightly different perspective. So thank you for listening. And as always, this pod is part of the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad. So if you haven't already, and if you're here, I hope that you have, that you've subscribed and are listening to all of the great shows um, that are on that feed. There's new stuff kind of popping up on the regular and also subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, there is a new show, Sunlight Horror or Sunlit Horror, um, that I, I think they've done two episodes so far and I absolutely love it. It's a really cool watch. So, uh, lots of content. So make sure that you have subscribed, leave a review, rate all of that good podcast business that I ask you to do all of the time. And, as always, if you want to reach out and say hey, or if you want to talk even more about Freaks, shoot me a line. I can be found on Twitter at Nicole, and that's Nicole with an H, N-I-C-H-O-L-E, in D.C. Or you can shoot me an email at bodiesofhorror at gmail.com. So, until next time. Scream Pod Squad.